0: Bless you, bless you. Uh, Tis the season to be sneezing, right? It is like everything's covered in green powder, right? And uh, 2 Samuel 15, and we're good, Josh? 2 Samuel 15. Um, and like I said, I want to kind of put a little caboose here on... We've been, we actually did 12 lessons on various topics pertaining to the family Things like a vision, things like correction, things like the right kind of parent, things like dealing with anger, because probably one of the most destructive things in Bible-believing homes is that spirit of anger that can really divide people up and divide uh, children and and parents. And uh, last week, we talked about winning the child's heart and getting the child's heart. And uh, tonight, I want to kind of just do some closure on that. I feel like the Lord is ready for us to move on a little bit, but we've gone to the verse many times, and I'm not going to go to it tonight, but Proverbs 22, 6 is kind of like the John 3:16 of child training, right? It says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And it's a blessed command. I mean, praise the Lord that God put that command in there. Yeah. Uh, that parents are commanded, it's not an option, right? Parents are commanded to train up a child in the way that they should go in the ways of God. Amen. But what happens when children don't go the way they should go? Right? Which is very often, very, very common. Uh, because if God's children can go wayward and get off the path, <laughs> and God is the greatest father there could be, Amen. Right? well, then our children can certainly rebel against us. Amen? Because we're not a millisecond of the father God is. Amen. And if God's children can sometimes be a little spiritually stunned, guess what? Our children can sometimes get turned aside. If they have a father like God and we could still disappoint him, guess what? Our children, we're sinners, right? Our children can disappoint us. My question is, what do you do when your child ends up a rebel? How do you win him back? Or, what do you do? And I know it's kind of a somber thought, but, uh, and I approach it with, with fear and trembling, um, being very delicate with it, because it's a very sensitive topic for all of us, because uh, it breaks your heart when that happens. But what do you do as a Christian? Because there's always something you can do, right? We're not helpless. So what do we do? Uh, 2 Samuel 15 is where I want to jump in. I want to study the uh, disobedient Absalom who rebelled against his father David, who was a pretty good guy himself, right? A man after God's heart. Uh, Absalom did some pretty dastardly things, old Absalom. Second Samuel 13, it says Absalom actually killed his half brother Amnon. Actually conspired to slay his own brother. Now, he might have had his reasons because of vengeance of what his brother had done to his sister Tamar, but still, that was pretty diabolical. A, a, a man that was a son of David. But in 2 Samuel 15, look at verse number 13. Interesting, this is verse 13, the number of rebellion. The Bible says... And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. There's Absalom actually conspiring conspiring to steal the kingdom from his own father. You want to talk about heartbreak? You want to talk about disappointment? You want to talk about, man, David must have felt like a failure. He said, let's get, let's get out of here. My own son is, is stealing the kingdom out from under my, my feet here. So what can we learn from this illustration? Because God put Absalom in the Bible for a lot of reasons, I know. But he put Absalom in the Bible for some practical reasons. What can we learn about children who don't go the way they should go by studying this traitor? You know what his name means? His name means father of peace. Absalom. Abba Shalom. Father of peace. Absalom should have been a blessing. He should have brought peace. But he's notorious now. Nobody names their kid Absalom. (laughs) Because he's notorious for all the problems he wrought. All the wicked things he did. What should have been a blessing ended up being a curse. Absalom becomes a great type of the Antichrist in your Bible. And that can happen with a lot of our children. What promise? What future? They could have brought peace and blessing and all these great things, and they end up being such a blight. So what do we do? How do you win a rebel? That's the lesson tonight. How do you win a rebel? How to win a rebel? Let's just see some things here from the Word of God that can help us when things go sideways. What do we do? Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you tonight, Lord, for just the illustrations of your Word. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us, Lord. We've turned aside a thousand times, and Lord, you're always there, Father. Help us to see your example of how you deal with us in our own stupidity, Lord. Help us to have your heart. Lord, I pray uh, for those that have children that may be wayward, may have gone wayward, may go wayward, Father. I pray we might learn something tonight to learn how to act. I pray none of it would be a reproach, Lord, or a or something to pour in salt in a wound, Father, but I pray it will be a blessing to your church, Lord, because there's always hope, and there's always something you can do with God, Father. As long as someone's breathing, and as long as we have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, there's always something we can do, Father. So we pray, Lord, you just show us how to be better ministers tonight, Lord, and we pray for the many needs, for the weather coming up, for the fair and church in the park, for this young lady, Lily, Father, whose life seems absolutely disastrous father and she's a maybe even example of what we're even talking about tonight lord maybe we can learn something about how to restore such in one father and we pray lord for um uh, for David Latoni, Father, thank you so much, dear God, for answering prayer. Lord, thank you for the God that answers prayer. Thank you for bringing him to church over there in Staten Island, Father. I pray he would be able to come to the mission tomorrow night and Ashley could go to the ladies' fellowship, Lord. And most of all, not that he could that attend and have a nice time, Father. I pray you'd wet their spiritual tongue. And open up a door of utterance, Father, that they might get saved. Ashley with the ladies, David with the men. Lord, help us not pounce. Help us to be patient. But, Lord, open that door. And when it opens, Lord, help us to just walk through it. And I pray you prepare his heart, even now, and Ashley's heart, even now, to have their names written in the book of life. And we thank you in advance, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Can you go with me to Proverbs chapter 4, please? We're going to come back to 2 Samuel. Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Uh, I got three things written here on the board that are just basically my three points. And there's probably lots and lots and lots of things that could be said about this topic. But I tried to boil it down to just a few simple points, a few simple takeaways. And uh, three is a good number. So I boiled it down to three things. And the first thing I want to say about how to win a rebel, that to win a rebel, you've got to get his heart or her heart. And ideally, you've got to get it early. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 the Bible says keep thy heart we know this verse great verse keep thy heart with all diligence kind of like the way you maintain your garden (laughs) keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it meaning the heart are the issues of life you know everything about your life depends on your heart. It doesn't matter what dispensation you're in, where in the Bible you are, whether you're Moses under the law or some dude in the millennium or somebody in the church age, everything about the future of your life, your destiny, your path, the the road your life takes depends on your heart attitude. You could be a thief on the cross and if God sees the right heart attitude, he can say today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. But you could be a Pharisee with Jesus Christ within arm's length and he could say unto you, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What's the difference between a thief on the cross and a Pharisee in a robe? It's The difference is heart attitude. Heart attitude. It's always heart attitude. God doesn't see as man seeth, because man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart go to chapter 23 go to chapter 23 same book we looked at this verse last week but let's look at it again everything about your life depends on your heart it is not your circumstances Because I know some people that have come up against awful circumstances and still followed God. And other people look like they had everything played out for them and they walked away from God faster than you could say Jesus. What's the difference? It isn't circumstances. That's an excuse. It's heart attitude. If you have a heart for God, there is always something you can do and there is always hope. But if you've got something wrong with your heart, it doesn't matter how many verses you see. It doesn't matter how well God stacks the deck. You're going to have a problem and you're going to be walking out the door. It's always heart attitude. And in Proverbs 23, 26, because it is so much about heart attitude, the Lord says, the king says to his children, my son, Proverbs 23, 26, give me thine heart. God says, I want to get your heart and I want to get it early. And if you're a parent here today, you should be trying to win your child's heart and win it early because that's what God does with you. We talked about that last week. Why? Because whoever, you're listening, whoever has your heart will ultimately Have you. Whoever has your heart is going to have you. Because you go where your heart goes. That's just the way it is. Out of it are the issues of life. Everything. You say, why does that young man walk away from church to chase that girl? Why does that young lady walk away from church to chase that guy? Because she's got his heart. Or he's got her heart. He said, I showed all these verses and I was pleading with them. It don't matter. Somebody, some little person has got that person's heart. Right. And because they got the heart, they just follow right behind. Right. What is your little girl, or your little boy grow up to run away with those awful friends? After all you've done for them and all you've shown them and all you've taught them. You know why? Somebody got their heart. Somebody got their heart. And that's why they start going In the wrong direction. They go in the direction of their heart. Right? Now go back to 2 Samuel. Let me show you some things now about David and Absalom's relationship. Because it wasn't great, it wasn't ideal. Isn't it amazing that Saul could raise a Jonathan and David raised an Absalom? Isn't that strange that a wicked king like Saul could have a son like Jonathan and a great king like David could have a son like Absalom? Frightening. I find that frightening. But let's look at 2 Samuel 13. Let's look at verse 19. 2 Samuel 13. I want you to see that David and Absalom were related. But they didn't seem to have much of a relationship. David and Absalom didn't seem to... David did not seem to have his heart. I took you to 2 Samuel 13. Take it from 19. Now, Tamar has been attacked by her other brother Amnon. And Absalom is livid about it. Uh, she's been raped, and I don't want to get into that. But and, and Absalom is so upset. And in Second Samuel thirteen nineteen, the Bible says, Tamar put all ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her, and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. And Absalom her brother said unto her, "Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee?" But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. But what did he do about it? I don't see David doing anything about it. Verse 22, And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon, because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years that Absalom and his, and had sheep shearers in Baal Hazar, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom come, came to the king and said, Behold now, thy servant hath sheep shearers. Let the king I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servants. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, if not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Can you see how little David seems to know of his son? I mean, for two years, Absalom is grinding his teeth and miserable and angry and conniving and probably had an evil eye toward Amnon. And David is clueless. David is just like, why do you want to invite Amnon? He has no idea. Mighty David seemed to have very little relationship with his son, Absalom. Look at verse 28. Here's what happens. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose. Every man got him up upon his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were in the way, that tidings came to David saying, Absalom have slain all the king's sons and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tear his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants stood by with their clothes rent. And Jonadab, the son of Shimia. David's brother answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon only is dead. Wow, what a horrific scene. Absalom had David's DNA. But he didn't have any of David's heart. You see any of David's compassion there? Any of David's mercy there? Any of David's long-suffering there? No, Amnon is full of hate. He's full of anger. He can't wait to kill his enemies. He's willing to slay his own brother. David falls on his face with grief when he hears about this going on. But Absalom doesn't seem to have any of that. So that just shows me that Absalom and David didn't have a great relationship. Seemed very strange. Seemed very distant. Didn't seem at all like David had his heart. Seems to me like Absalom was paying lip service to David. David. But there wasn't a lot of love there. Oh, yes, King, can I do this? Oh, come on, King, can I do that? But where's the relationship between the father and the son? I wonder, are you regulating your child's actions without considering his hard attitudes? Remember, it's all about hard attitude. Remember that illustration I gave? You could get that little one to sit down in that seat, but are they standing on the inside? You got the compliance, you got the obedience, you got the action and the behavior you want so you can sit in the front of church and nobody gets embarrassed because you got them like trained little mules sitting there, but in their heart, they're as far from you as Absalom was from David. Oh, David talked all polite. I'm sorry, Absalom talked all polite to David and all these things, but what was going on underneath his heart? It was pretty wicked. Now look at verse 34. Watch this, what happens in 34. But Absalom, now when it hits the proverbial fan, the Bible says, Absalom fled. And the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's sons come, as thy servant said, so it is. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of speaking, that behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very sore. But Absalom fled. And went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Gesher. And David mourned for his son every day. Can I tell you this? Because David never had his heart, Absalom runs away to his people. You see that? When it really got stressful, when it really got bad, you know what Absalom was? Absalom left the place of God, he left the people of God, and he ran back to Gesher. You know where Gesher was? Gesher was a principality of Syria. That was the land that his mother came from, because his mother was from Gesher. So he wasn't a full-blooded Jew. Right? like Probably like the Antichrist is not going to be a full-blooded Jew. That's the land his mother came from. He doesn't run to Israel. He doesn't run to the temple. He doesn't run to where the people of God are, the priests of God are. He runs back to the old life. He runs back to the world. He runs back to the lost companions. He runs back to the people that are walking in the flesh. That's who the Gesherites represent, right? The old man, the old life, the people of the world, the people that are not the people of God. That's what's going to happen. If you never get your child's heart, you know what's gonna happen? He or she will inevitably run back to his people, not God's people. They'll run back to the world, they'll run back to the flesh, just like Absalom did. When things got rocky and things got dangerous and things got uncomfortable for him, you know he didn't he didn't resort to the horns of the altar. He resorted to the people in Gesher the old folks, the people that were unsaved and outside the will of God and outside the promises of God, why do you run to them? Isn't that sad when somebody runs to the world instead of running to us? That's a a cry in shame. Now go back to 2 Samuel 15. Let me just show you this. You say, well then how do you get your child's heart? I mean, how do I win my child's heart the same way God wins your heart? The same way Absalom stole the Israelites' heart. It's a shame that we learn a lesson from Absalom, but Absalom stole all the people's hearts. You know what he did? Look at it. Second Samuel fifteen. Look at verse number one. Look what he did. And it came to pass after this, after this whole, as my grandmother would say, "embroya." After this whole big thing with him running away, I find myself using these words more and more now. You know, they make a lot of sense. I don't know how they translate, but they make a lot of sense in my head, right? And it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. That was the place when everybody came through to have their issues judged. And he stood there. And look what it says. And it was so that when a man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. You know the first thing Absalom did to steal the people's hearts? He spoke to them. He spoke to them. Hey, where are you from? How you doing? How's it going? What, what brings you here today? I wonder, do you really speak to your child? Or just at your child? You ever say, how you doing, son? What are you thinking about today, honey? What would you read in your Bible today? What are you worried about? What's going on inside those ears? You ever have a conversation with them? That goes a long way. You know, God talks to you, doesn't he? You got 1,189 chapters of precious promise, precious promise. And every time you open this book, God is just trying to speak to you, speak to you, speak to you. He doesn't always want to speak at you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to talk to you. The first thing I see Absalom doing is something we should all do. He's speaking to people. Looking them in the eyes and asking them questions. How you doing? That's a great thing to do with your children. You know what he does in verse 3? I'll show you what he does in verse 3. It's so stupidly simple and hiding in plain sight. 2 Samuel uh, 15, 3. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there's no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me and I would do him justice. He's kind of saying, you know, the king's got a long line. He's a busy guy. I know you can't get to him, but you know, you could tell me your problem. I'll try to help you out. You know what he did, number two? He listened to them. Ah, how many woman is, how many a young lady is seduced because somebody just listened to her. Like the serpent you know, listen to Eve and had a conversation with her. You ever look at a girl and say, what in the world is she doing with that monster next to her? Because somebody just probably played the fiddle on her and just had a conversation with her. Just talked to her and let her talk to him and something was kindled there and the rest is history. Yeah. And you know what he's doing here? He's just listening to them. I want to know, parents, do you really listen to your child? really take the time to hear about their fears and their worries and their wonderings, their musings and their, you know, their ideas, what they want to be, what they don't want to be, what's going on? Do you take the time and you're just so busy, 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 you don't have time to listen to their little problems? Can I tell you, God listens to you and your little problems, doesn't he? You know how silly some of the things you talk to God must be in the grand scheme of things? But does God ever make it seem silly to him? No, you can come to God when you're a little kid about the math test. You can come to God when you're a big kid about the cancer ward. You can come to God with all these things. You know what? God gives you the time of day for everything. The Bible says, be careful for nothing, right? Bring all your worries, casting all your care upon him. For he careth for you. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's an amazing God. That's why God woos you to himself. That's how we got to be willing to woo others to ourselves. Listen, and in verse number five, look what happens. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, right? Because they were kind of like, you know, kind of just genuflecting a little towards him. Um, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. You know what else Absalom did that some parents could learn a lesson He showed them affection with a touch or a kiss or an embrace. He said, my kids know I love them. Yeah, well, you need to show them and you need to tell them. Because you think they know, but they need a hug once in a while. They need a kiss once in a while, right? They need some physical contact once in a while. Something about putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, like a brother in Christ and just shaking a hand or an embrace or something like that, or a sister in Christ just kind of holding a hand, you know, when somebody's going through something. Hey, do you show your children any affection? You're just cold as ice. See verse number six, look at what it says. And on this manner, watch this, watch this. Learn from the devil, man. Learn from his ways. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel with a conversation and an open ear and a gentle touch. If he could steal their hearts that way, maybe you could win your children's hearts that way. That sounds good to me. And watch verse 7. And it came to pass after 40 years. The devil will take his time. The devil sure is patient. And I'll tell you, the devil will take his time to steal your heart. And the devil will take his time to steal your children's heart. He made the time. Absalom got up every morning and went over to that gate and he made the time to steal those people's hearts for a wicked device. I wonder, are you willing to take the time to get your child's heart, to make the time and set aside the time to win his or her heart to yourself? You know, they say you spell love, T-I-M-E. That's how you spell love, T-I-M-E. So do you love your children enough to make time for them. Because if you don't L-O-V-E your child enough to make the T-I-M-E, someone else will. Someone else will. Amen. Yep. And the one who's making the time for them is the one that's going to win their heart. The one that's listening to them is the one that's going to win their heart. The one that embraces them and says, come on, brother, let's go, let's go out, let's go do something. That's the one that's going to win their heart. That should be you in that place, doing the best you can. Now, I know they could have a will of their own. They could take all your good deeds and go wayward anyway. But I'm saying, here's what you can do. You can only do as much as you can do. So I'm trying to give you some hope. Now, go to Ephesians chapter 6. Let me show you something else that will definitely destroy your relationship with your child. This might be the only real negative commandment. I might be wrong on this, but this might be the only negative commandment in the New Testament for parents to children. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4. The Bible says, Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, negative commandments sometimes have a lot more weight than positive commandments. Thou shalt not kill is a lot more important, is, is a lot graver than speak the truth in love. right? If you don't speak the truth in love, you can maybe get away with it next time. But if you kill somebody, that's kind of like really bad. So God's negative commandments sometimes tend to really get our attention. So when he says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, That's a negative commandment that he's saying, you better watch out because if you do this, it's going to have really, really bad impact. You will lose your child's heart and you will sever that relationship with them if you provoke your child to wrath. You know what you're trying to do? You're trying to build fellowship. It's like tying a little string between you and your kids. And it's delicate, those little strings you tie in between you and your kids. And you want there to be as many strings as possible so it becomes like a rope, like a cord that isn't able to be broken. But it's really tenuous. And those little strings, you provoke that child to wrath and those things snap real easy when you do that. When you make them angry without a cause and when you just frustrate them with your lack of compassion. Got to be real careful, folks. What does God do to you? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10, you know this verse, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Right? What does God do to you? Does God provoke you to anger? Of course not. God provokes you to love him more, love your brethren more, do good things more. That's what God's provoking you or pushing or prodding you to do. He doesn't provoke you to wrath. You say, how can a parent provoke their child to wrath? Well, if you're harsh or cruel with your children... That might do more damage than a lot of things. Harshness, cruelty, anger is just going to provoke them to more anger. Amen. Just going to make them burn up inside. Amen. So how can I provoke my children to anger if you are overly critical of your children? You will drive them from your home faster than you can say Jesus. That critical spirit might be more dangerous than fornication. That critical spirit can kill a church, kill a family, and kill a relationship faster than drugs and alcohol might ever do. A critical spirit is like an icy cold pail that just comes over something and just puts everybody in this weird state where nobody wants to be around each other. It'll kill the church faster than sin will. I'll tell you that. A critical spirit is dangerous. My pastors told me that. They said, brother, they told me this years ago. They said, a critical spirit will kill your church faster than any of those sins of the flesh that people worry about. And we're always looking out for the sins of the flesh. Who's doing this? Who's doing that? But it's your critical spirit looking at everybody with that evil eye that might just put an icy chill on the Holy Spirit's work in a church. Don't let that trickle into your family. It's destructive. It's deadly. It's dangerous. And other bad words that start with D. All right? And if you publicly shame or embarrass your child, they have just shut down they come off that ball field, they come off that stage from that recital and you've got negative words to say, you might as well just put a key and lock and key over your mouth and don't talk because you publicly shame them or in front of the family you embarrass them. They will never forget that for a long time. That's how you provoke them to wrath. And if you treat him or her like a black sheep, don't be surprised when that black sheep goes astray because that's what sheep do. So if they're always a black sheep living under the thumb of this lack of approval that they can never win your good graces, guess what? They're going to bounce. They're going to bounce. And they're going to rebel and they're going to run to the world because you know what the world's going to do? They're going to embrace Him. Amen. And they're going to love Him unconditionally like God does and like you are supposed to do. So you really want to win that rebel or safeguard? Anybody going rebellious? Get His heart and get it early. Get it as fast as you can. Make it your mission in life that I'm going to win my child's heart, my grandkids' heart, uh, kids in my Sunday school's heart. Whatever you got little ones in your life, go after their heart. They make a little mistake, okay, correct them, but don't just harp on the mistake. Love them to death and get their heart. Let them know you love them. Number two, let's go to 2 Samuel 13. That making any sense? All right. 2 Samuel 13, number two. You want to win a rebel or you want to keep somebody from being rebellious or try to win them back? Let me get to 2 Samuel 13 with you. 2 Samuel 13. You got to communicate. If you want to win that rebel back, you've got to do your best to communicate with him or her. Look at 2 Samuel 13, 38. Now, right, Absalom has done something pretty bad, right? He's killed his brother Amnon. He's running away. Look what it says in 2 Samuel 13, 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. But Absalom runs away, and and David misses him, I guess. It says that, but David doesn't see his son for three years. Oh, I miss him so much. But he didn't make any effort to go reach out to him or communicate with him, right? You got to communicate. Look at chapter 14. Look at chapter 14. 2 Samuel 14. Look at verse number 23 of 2 Samuel 14. So Joab arose and went to Gesher, right? So Joab goes and fetches him now, right? He doesn't go himself, David. He sends his, his, his one of his his. mercenaries Joab was. He's not a mighty man. He had no heart for God. He's more like a mercenary Joab. So Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, and David still won't see his son. I can do a little bit of math. Three years in Gesher, two years in Jerusalem. That's five years of no fellowship with his son, no communication, no conversation, no listening. How could he have ever won his heart with such a lack of communication like that? And look at verse 29. Look how sad verse 29 is. 29 says, Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. I mean, it looks to me like Absalom wants to see David, but that son couldn't get to his father. That's very, very sad. On a human level, it makes me wonder, did this story have to end the way it ended? If maybe he could have gotten to David, they could have worked this out and communicated a little bit. And look at verse 30. Look what happens now. Look what happens now. Now, imagine Absalom, that guilt on his conscience, that animosity towards David, and they're just separated from David. We're going on five years. Can I see David? No. Can I see my father? No. What's happened? What do you think's happening? It's grinding in him. It's turning him inside out. It's turning him upside down. His insides are churning. You ever get in a fight with somebody and retreat into your corners? Oh, the mind. You start turning over what you're going to say. How could they do this? Blah, 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 blah. You know what happens? You, you're 50 paces down the road and you've had 75 conversations about something and nothing's happening because you're not talking to each other. There's no communication. but You're grinding. You're steaming. You're fuming. That's what's happening to Absalom. Verse 30. Therefore he said unto his servants, this is Absalom speaking, see Joab's field is near mine. And he hath barley there, go and set it on fire. That'll get his attention. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Job, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let, let him them, let them kill me. You know what happened in my mind? Absalom was burning up so much on the inside, he set those fields afire on the outside. What was going on on the outside was just a manifestation of what was going on on the inside. He was so burnt up and so twisted and so upset that he finally started taking it out on the world outside of him. And regardless of who is right and who is wrong and what happened, when something goes on in your family, you must endeavor to communicate with your child. You can't run into your corners. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Because if you go into your corners, you're just going to light yourselves on fire. And eventually, you're going to set your fields on fire. And the field is the world. That world outside of you is going to start burning up and getting consumed because you're not getting the thing fixed and getting it right. Ephesians chapter 4 is not speaking about families. It's speaking about the family of God. It's not speaking about physical families. It's speaking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's the Ephesians is the one of the most spiritual books in the New Testament. It's the Song of Solomon of the New Testament. It shows you all about your relationship with Christ and what this thing called the church is that you're a part of. And in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26, the Lord gives us some practical advice about our walk with God and our walk with each other on this earth. And he says, "Be ye angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath." That's good advice for brothers and sisters, guys. When there is beef between brethren, you best not run to your corners. Because when you run to your corners, it's just things just start stirring up. And pretty soon the fields are afire. Right? Husbands and wives, dads and moms, and, you know, all these brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, when there's things, get to some kind of resolution and communicate. Because if you just run to your corners and go to bed angry... Husbands and wives, moms and dads, kids and parents, go to bed angry, nothing good comes of it, the Bible says. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. You go to bed angry, and you just let the devil put his split foot in the door. And he puts his foot in the door, you give him an inch, and he takes the ruler. That's like David did, right? David did that with Absalom, didn't want to talk to him. And what did he do? Didn't want to see his face. What did that do? It just fueled the fires of rebellion burning in his wicked heart. Did it have to be that way? I don't know. That's the way it played out. That's what David did. That unresolved issue between you and your child will burn them up inside till all your fields are afire, till it's burned outside of you. You ever read what the psalmist said in Psalm 39? He said, while I was musing, the fire burned. You know, you start thinking about some stuff, and it can burn you up. In a good way, sometimes you start thinking about heaven, you start thinking about grace, you start thinking about the streets of gold, you start thinking about forever land, you start thinking about forgiveness, you start thinking about never being separated from God, you start thinking about seeing loved ones again, you start thinking about all this, you know what that does? That's a good fire, right? You meditate on those things, you know what? It'll warm your heart. But you start thinking about What he said and what she said and why it went this way and how come this didn't happen. I can't believe this. And that pat up there with his loud mouth and this one over there, blah, 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 and all that stuff. You just just keep meditating on that and muse on that, and there's another fire that's going to burn. And you don't address it and get it right and maybe talk it out. Guess what? It's going to set all those fields outside of you on fire. Because, hey, newsflash, the bedrock of any relationship is... Communication. Amen. Every relationship at its simplest form is talking and listening. That's all it is, right? Communication. Hey, good job, Pat. No, that's, that's pretty Amen, right? simple, right? That's really simple. I'm a, I'm a dumb guy. I want to bring it down where the cookies are, right? Talking and listening is communication. That's the bedrock of any relationship, whether it's husband-wife, parent-child, Christian-Christian, Christian and God. It's communication, and the foundation of your relationship with God is communication. Amen. It's talking and it's listening. God speaks to you through His Word, Amen. Yeah, yeah. And you know what you do? You listen, yeah. and then guess what? You get to speak to God through prayer, and you know what? God listens. You know what you got there? You got yourself a relationship. Not a religion. Where do I put the money? Where does the candles... You know, where, where do I kneel? How many times do I go? All that silly, silly. Isn't that so silly? Once you taste Bible Christianity, how could you ever go back to that stuff? The weak and beggarly elements, right? You know, well, I can eat meat on this Friday, but I can't meat in on that Friday. I remember being at a competition one time, total tangent, nothing to do with this. I remember being at a competition in high school and I was part of a Catholic school, right? Now I'm going to, Beat up on that religion. I could plug in plenty of other religions. But you know, you couldn't eat meat on Fridays during Lent. Um, now I've learned smarter things to say, like I gave up Lent for Lent, but I didn't know that back then. So you couldn't eat meat right on Friday. So we're at this competition, this state championship competition up in Albany. And I'll never forget Sister Ramon. I'll never forget she comes to the microphone in front of the whole big thousands of people and she says, I just spoke with the uh Cardinal, and he said that you could all have a special indulgence and we could all eat meat, and we all roared. We ran across the parking lot to Wendy's, and we just, blah, 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 you know. And now I look back on that and think, I was a part of that. Right? That's religion, right? <laughs> when to eat, when to bow, when to touch, when to anoint. All that stuff is nonsense. Just for people maybe watching at home, hi, how are you? Or people here that might not have gotten a message yet. This is not a religion, <laughs> right? This is, if anything, it's pure religion and file, like James says. But it's a relationship. It's based on talking and listening. We read the Bible and study it so we know what God says to us. And we gather and pray individually and corporately so we could talk to God. And those two things, as simple as it is, is the heartbeat of your Christian life. You say, man, I want to be a better Christian. Read your Bible and pray. Amen. Amen. And you know what you do tomorrow? Wake up tomorrow and read your Bible Amen. and pray. Amen. And in three weeks from Thursday, you know what you need to do? Read your Bible yes. and pray. And that's how you'll build a relationship. There's no special class to take. There's no special dispensation to get. You don't need Sister Ramon to say that meat is available. Go get yourself a Junior Whopper. No, you don't need anything like that. All you need to do is see what God says to you and talk back to God in prayer. You know what happens? You're going to start to see a relationship foster right? It's going to grow, it's going to grow, it's going to grow. But what happens, Christians, and if you're a Christian, say amen. 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 All right, some of you are thinking about a junior whopper now. I'm sorry, right? But uh, what happens to your relationship with God when the communication stops? Huh? Not too good, right? It It goes ice cold south, dead as a doornail, right? When you stop listening to God by closing the Bible and stepping out of church, guess what? You're not hearing what God is saying anymore. You know, at least you come to church, you hear it a little bit, but usually when you've left church, you've already closed your Bible a few weeks ago or months ago. That's right. What happens when you stop talking to God by ceasing to pray? It doesn't make anything better. It doesn't make your relationship with God better. It doesn't make you better. Does cutting off, don't answer out loud, just answer in your mind for me, does cutting off communication with God ever make the situation better? We would all say a resounding, emphatic, no, it never makes it better. It makes you angrier, shorter fuse, lack of patience, lack of peace, all those things that you got victory over, like weeds in a garden you stopped taking care of, come flooding back when you get rid of the only thing that helped you be right, which was your relationship with God. I've said it a million times, let me say it a million and one times. There is nothing more important than your personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's more important than anything else in your life that talking and listening between you and God, one-on-one, is important. Because when you cut off that communication, there's a vacuum. And you know who's gonna fill that vacuum? It lets the devil get his big foot in there and fill your mind with all kinds of nonsense. How a Christian gets so offended when they stop reading their Bible. How a Christian just can turn their countenance towards you and look at you so differently. The one that you once thanked and loved and praised and blessed God for is now the chiefest of enemies among you. What happened? God didn't change. That's right. The Bible didn't change. Right. And for the most part, we didn't change. Oh, something, and you changed. You cut off some communication, and somebody's filling your mind with some other thoughts. And you know what? It's not just going to fill your mind. It's going to light the flame of rebellion in your heart because at heart, brethren, you're a rebel at heart because your great-great-great-great-great-dan daddy, Adam, was a rebel. Right, he tried to hide his rebellion in his heart, but he was a rebel. He turned against God, and that's in there. And just give a little push, and God will light that wick, and that flame will start burning, and then pretty soon it consumes everything. If no communication ruins your relationship with God, what is it going to do with your relationship with others when you don't communicate, whether it's children or spouse? And I know sometimes you can't force it. I know sometimes things have to be left alone. I get that, but man, oh man, we should try. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. You know God tries. Go to Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll do this and one more quick one. Jeremiah 2. Stay with me just for a few more minutes. Thank you for your very kind attention. Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah is not a good book as far as God's people are concerned. They're in apostasy. They're doing all kinds of wicked things. Their heart is as far from God as east is from the west. And you know what? God's getting ready to smack them. God's getting ready to judge them. The northern kingdom has already been taken away, and now the southern kingdom is getting ready to be taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And look what he says in Jeremiah 2.1. Look what he says to his people, even though their hearts are far from him. The Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when well, thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. It's like God saying, Remember when you were in love with me? Remember when you first found me and I first found you? How special it was, how happy we were together. Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase, and all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. God said, I had your back. Man, when we, when we were together, we were like peas and carrots and nobody would mess with you as long as I was with you. Amen. Verse four. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain. I think that's one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. It's like God saying, what did I do? But try to love you. Verse 6, neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Oh, how quickly we forget, that led us through the wilderness, how quickly we forget, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land, made mine heritage an abomination. God says, I did all this for you and you dropped me like a bad habit. The priests said not, where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The churches were terrible. I'm just spiritualizing there. He says, even the preachers were a mess. Even the men of God weren't looking for God anymore. Verse nine, wherefore I will yet Plead with you," saith the Lord, Amen. "and with your children's children will I plead. Isn't it amazing? Even in His people, in such apostasy, where you and I would say disgraziar, we'd just be like done with them, right? We're going to take a tally. How many butchered <laughs> Italian words can I fit in a message now? But you know what? God would say, we would say, right? The Sicilian to me is rising up. We'd just say, be like, I'm done with you. You're dead to me. And God says, even though you've done all that, I'll keep pleading with you. He doesn't want to That's good. lose the relationship. That's good. And finally, go to Luke 15. Communication is key. Luke 15. Number one, you want to win a rebel or keep a rebel from happening? Get his heart and get it early. You want to win a rebel and maybe keep a rebel from burning everything else up? Communicate. And finally, in the end, ultimately, you must wait on God. To win your rebel back. See Luke fifteen eleven? Familiar passage. What happens when you've done everything you can? And they're still gonna go anyway. Reality, right? It happens. Luke fifteen, eleven. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. I'm just gonna read something into this right now, because I think you see that word me in verse twelve, and there's a period. Then it says he divided unto them his living. I think there's a period there because I think the father did a little bit of pleading in there. I think the father did a little like, son, I don't think you want to do that. I don't think you want to try that. I don't think you want to go there, son. I think you want to just wait on God, son. I think you want God's ways are the best ways, son. I don't think the father just forked it right over. I'm sure there was a little bit of back and forth between the two of them there. But look, if your son is intent on going prodigal, There's nothing you can do to stop him, which is sad, but it's a reality. I mean, you can't spank a 16-year-old anymore. Even if you wanted to, the guy might deck you, right? You're not going to put him over your knee. You can't do anything. And if you... If you haven't gotten his heart or his heart has gone somewhere else by this point, you can't stop him from wandering because his heart is already in that far country, right? Lot was already in Sodom long before his body ever entered the city. He was staring at that city and his heart was already salivating over that wicked place. Here's the principle that you and I have to take away as we deal with people, whether it's our children or other children. You can't help someone more than they want to be helped. That's right. You could want to do everything. I'll chloroform you. I've joked around. I'll chloroform somebody and drag them back to church. But you can't. You can't go beyond their will. And you can't help someone more than they want to be helped. They ultimately have to take the step themselves. And if your child, God forbid, insists on being a fool, you may have no choice but to let them go. And you may be forced to let him go physically, but you bring him before God continually. That's what I'm saying. You may lose his presence in your life, but you don't stop waiting on God. You don't stop pleading with God. You don't stop bringing him before the throne of grace. Why? Look at verse number 13. Look what happens. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And If you read Proverbs, you know he was messing around with harlots because he that, he, he that messed around with harlots spendeth his substance, the Bible says. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I wonder if it weren't a parent's prayers that made the far country so bitter. I wonder if it wasn't a daddy and a mama praying every day that made that far country just seem so disgusting to this young man. That the party just seemed to get rained on pretty quick. That he's there at the end of his rope hitting rock bottom. And in verse 17, you notice verse 17, he came to himself. I want you to say this to myself and to all of you here. It's going to take some faith. We're saying, wait on God, parent. Wait on God. Give him to God. Give him to God. Give him to God. Listen, it's going to take faith to let God humble him without running to the rescue. Because it's very easy to run to the rescue. I'm sure if he dialed, you know, texted his dad, I'm hungry, you'd want to run to Costco and just leave the groceries at the house. But you know what? Sometimes when God is putting somebody in the ringer and he's letting his judgment come upon them, sometimes you have to, as painfully as it has, if you're really giving them to God, you have to step back with tears in your eyes and allow God to deal with them. Why? Because verse 13, look at verse 18. It had a good result. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven End before thee. See, the son got repentance, not just remorse. And you've sometimes got to let people go through things to make sure they get repentance, which is Godward, and not just remorse and regret, which is earthward, <laughs> right? Sometimes people are like, oh, I've made my life such a mess, and I've ruined this, and I did this, and I got that problem, and I'll come to Jesus for a little while, and as soon as he cleans up my problem i am back on the road again. There was never any repentance. He said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And that father, as hard as it was, I'm sure word got back to his father. He was a wealthy man, a man of prestige. I'm sure word got back to his father. You know your son's herding swine in the far country? I'm sure it got back to his dad. I'm sure it broke his heart. I'm sure he wanted to swoop in with all his resources and just fix it. But in fixing it, he would just be prolonging the problem. Right. That he had to let him, de- God deal with him, even if it was painful, even if it was difficult. He had to step back a little bit and give him to God and let God take him through a famine, take him in the far country, let him hit rock bottom, feign to feel his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. So he would truly repent before God and then get right with his dad. Verse 20, verse 20, almost there, 20. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You know why? You step back, you give him to God. Why? So when your child goes wayward, you wait and watch and pray like the father. He's waiting, he's watching, he's praying. And when you cannot be with him in the pig pen, because you don't go in with the pig pen with him. I'm not going to meet you at your level, son. I'm not going in the pig pen with you to win you. I've got standards, I've got a holy God, I'm not getting dirty to pull you out. That never works that way. You never get dirty to make somebody clean. You never put yourself, you never sin to get somebody out of sin. It's never right to do wrong to do right. Okay, it's never that way. So he said, I can't be with with you in the pig pen, son, but I could be with you in prayer. And I'll pray and I'll pray and I'll pray and I'll pray. And in verse 20, when you see his heart turn again, you come running. Because that's what God does for you, right? What does God do for you? You're just like that prodigal son. How many times have you been an idiot like that prodigal son? And in verse 17 and 18, you've scorned God's warning. I know you're all pious on a Thursday night, but you and I have scorned God's warning. You know what he did? He waited so you'd see for yourself what it tastes like to be in the pig pen. He said, all right, son, you want to see what it's like? You like that? You like the vomit? You like the piss? You like the, like the manure? You like that? You're enjoying that? Okay, you want to come home now? And when you turn, like verse 20, the Lord runs to you. What does the Bible say? Draw nigh to God, and He'll draw nigh to you. You take that step, He takes 20 in your direction. He's just looking for a heart to turn. Now go finish me in 2 Samuel. We're going to finish right there. 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. Oh, no. 2 Samuel 18. I'm sorry. 2 Samuel 18. Look at verse 5. Now they're going back. They're going after Absalom. You know what? David, he made a lot of mistakes, David, but when he was trying to restore Absalom, he seemed to have the right idea. 2 Samuel 18, 5, he says to him, and the king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai. these are some of his warriors, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man even with Absalom and all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's charge concerning Absalom you know David was right to just let's you know we're getting him back we're going to try to restore him let's just deal gently and wait on god with this rebel let's not take matters into our own hands and just drag him by the nose let's deal gently it's good advice spirit of christ the bible says is gentle he's gentle but look what happens in verse 9 Verse 9, and Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. You know, David, he was right to deal gently, because David knew that eventually the Lord would catch up with him. And God did that. He's just riding under this tree, and he gets caught in a tree, and all of a sudden now Absalom's caught. He's stuck. God got him, right? God got his attention. Maybe we could deal with him now. But you know what happens? Verse number 10. And a certain man saw it and told Job and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Job said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him. And why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son? For in our hearing the king charged thee, and Abishai and Itzii saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom, otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life. For there is no matter hid from the king that thou and thou thyself wouldest have set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting on God. I'm taking matters into my own hands. That's all Joab. David said, deal gently. God gets his attention. God puts him in a spot where he's got nowhere to go. And Joab says, I'm going to get him. I'm not going to tarry. I'm not going to wait. I'm not dealing gently. Look what he does. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the yoke. And ten young men that bare Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Rather than wait on God, Joab took matters into his own hands and that rebel was destroyed instead of being restored. Maybe the story could have ended differently if they just waited, took some time, and dealt gently. I don't know, but I know that's not what God wanted. He didn't want those boys to roll up on him and butcher that kid when David was trying to restore that kid, David had enough unction to wait on God and be patient with Absalom and Joab is just the flesh. He just wanted to kill him and get his pound of flesh and take his revenge out on him and show that punk. And then he lost him. And look at verse 33. Look at the end. 33. And the king was much moved. And went up to this chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Sadly, the account of Absalom does not have a happy ending because he there's a lot of violated principles there. And ultimately, folks, your child, like you with God, is gonna have to choose God Himself. Right? Your child has a will. You could do everything, quote unquote, right. And that child can still do wrong because that child has a will and that child is going to make a choice just like you have to make a choice. You have to choose God, don't you? You have to choose God. Guess what? They have to choose right for themselves. But Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. and When he was old, he will not depart from it. It's a promise to a parent that if you do your best, perhaps, if you follow the principles in this book, that rebel can return if they're willing even if it takes a long, long time, because eventually he'll come around. You know that? In the end, they're all going to come around. In this life or the next, everything's going to be made right. So eventually, they'll know the way they should go, and they'll, and they'll, they'll experience it. So no matter how bleak the situation, there is always something you can do with God. And the road may be long, but it's worth it if you can win that rebel back for the glory of God. So let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for the hope of your word, Lord, and the promises of your scriptures, Lord. And we just ask, Lord, now, just take these things that were said, Lord, and um, just, Lord, use it. Get some glory out of it just to encourage and comfort, Lord. And uh, there could be things in the past, Lord, that are difficult to consider now, Lord. I just pray for your mercy in those situations, Lord. I know there's optimism with little ones all around us, Father. May we learn how to deal with problems and situations the right way. And just help us, Lord, to be better Christians, better parents, better ministers. Through your word and by the power of your spirit, we ask you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.